Uh, this is episode nine of the Janet Lewis Show. In the podcast, I'll be talking with people who've tapped into what they love and are living the life they imagined. Or maybe they didn't imagine it, but have become super successful at what they're doing. They've been able to figure out what gives them energy or makes them happy and turn it into a business, or they found a career that allows them to shine. We're going to talk about their life story, how they got to where they are, and what has influenced their journey. Today, I'm super excited. Uh, we're talking with Forrest Gillette. Forrest is a professional speaker that's passionate about mental health. His mission is to help people reduce stress and anxiety in their lives. He is the author of the number one bestseller, Baseballs Don't Bounce, which is about his own personal journey from hopelessness to happiness. He is also the author of 12 Hugs to Happiness, which is a children's book about a young boy from a broken home who finds self-love and acceptance. And Forrest's inspirational story of success is featured in the New York Times on number one bestseller, The Success Principles by Jack Canfield, which to date has sold over 1 million copies. So that is super exciting. And Forrest teaches and inspires people around the world. He wants people to commit to doing their best and believes that each and every one of us can choose success and personal fulfillment. What I find super interesting about Forrest's story is how he has come to where he is today. And I can't wait for him to share his journey with us. So Forrest, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much, Jan. I always love to see you because I think um, what I remember so much about you is that you're always smiling and you always have so many nice things to say about everybody that's around you. Um, so I originally met Forrest many years ago through my brother and, uh, we grew up in the same area and I have to admit, I did a little bit of snooping on your website and, uh, on your Facebook page and I was reading some of the testimonials, um, and everyone has such great things to say about you. They really appreciate your, appreciate your sensitivity, uh, your strength of character and, you know, you have a special gift that you're able to share with people in order to help them move beyond their own current situation. And you give them hope and inspire them to pick themselves up and get going. Uh, your own story is incredible and it's wonderful that you're willing to share it in order to help others. I think people can truly see that you're such a down to earth person that genuinely cares about people and their situations. And it's fascinating that you're able to connect with people on a deeper level sometimes when they are in the biggest struggle of their lives. And, you know, at that point in time, people usually just want to run away and hide, <laughs> but they love to talk to you, which is amazing. And I love how much you want to help and inspire others so they can lead a better life. So Forrest, why don't we talk a little bit about you and where you started and how you grew up and what your life was kind of like? Uh, growing up was pretty rough as a child. Um, I grew up in an extremely violent and abusive home. My mother left when I was six years old and never returned, not even to this day. And uh, so I grew up with many different mothers. Uh, my dad was married six times. Wow. And uh, at the age of 14, I went to a foster home in Aurelia and they took me in and I left there when I was 16 years old because I crashed their car <laughs> and I felt that maybe I was unwanted or a burden and those were my own thoughts not their feelings or what they said uh, so I moved out on my own I've been on my own since I was 16 years old wow that's crazy what was do you remember back to that time when you were 16 and what it felt like to have to go out on your own like were you happy to do that or oh, I was extremely happy uh, I was so excited that I didn't have to walk on eggshells or worry about getting beaten when I came home and it was just so free. Uh, it, it felt so good to be on my own. And I look back now and my son, who's 18 years old, you know, I couldn't see him moving on his own at all. <laughs> really? Not, not even for a few years. Wow. And it's hard to believe how, how fast you can grow up yeah. when, when you're put in a difficult situation. Yeah. And so um, you're 16. What do you do at 16? Uh, well, I had nowhere to stay, so I applied for a job at a pizza parlor, and they had a, a small apartment in the back, and I thought, wow, this is great. I have a place to live. 
all the food I can eat, which is pizza. Who doesn't love pizza? And uh, I, I had a car to drive, and it was their <laughs> delivery car. So a roof over my head and food and a car to drive. And when you're 16 years old, that's that's the world. And so were you still going to school at this point in time? Yes. You were. And did you graduate from high school? Not until I was 37 years old. Oh, really? I left school when I, I only needed one credit. And uh, I started working at a car dealership in Midland. And I was, I think I was 18, 17 or 18 years old when I started there. And I started on the March break. And my first week I made $700. The second week uh, of the March break, I made over $1,000. And I thought, who needs school? I'm not going back. <laughs> you got it all figured out. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it was uh, really good. And I stayed there for several years. And I appreciate uh, the owner of that dealership for taking a chance on me and giving me a chance. And so um, what did you do after the car dealership? I started my own business uh, called Uncle Bucks. We did payday loans and check cashing. Uh, then we opened eight uh, businesses in Ontario uh, and it grew to 23 employees and I franchised all the stores and I thought I was on top of the world and everything was going great until uh, October 6, 2002. And so um, I think this is the part where Horace is going to share another tragedy that happened in his life, which, um, you know, I'd heard about it when it happened. I couldn't believe it. And so I'll let you um, tell the story of what it is that happened. Yes. So on October 6, 2002, um, we were just building a new home in Victoria Harbor near your brothers. <laughs> and uh, I had a car for sale and the person wanted to take it for a test drive. And I gave him the keys and I sat in the passenger seat. And I don't remember leaving the driveway, but what happened was he was driving at a high rate of speed, speaking to his son on the cell phone, saying that I'm going to be late for dinner, and the phone went dead. Uh, and then it turned out that the car flipped end for end into a deep ditch, and it took uh, a full 30 minutes for the paramedics and fire department to extricate us from the car. And I couldn't believe how the people around me would feel because I was on the fire department at that time as a volunteer as a volunteer yeah. and I had been on the f volunteer fire department for 10 years so all of a sudden the helper needs help yeah and so the people that were on the fire department with me uh, were extricating me from this car but they didn't recognize me uh, so they didn't know it was you at the time no I was sitting in the passenger seat and because my face and head was so swollen and bloody uh, I was just unrecognizable and uh, Julie heard about the accident my wife and then so she drove up the road towards the accident and the fire chief said with tears in his eyes you can't go any further yeah wow and they weren't sure if we were going to make it or not uh, so I spent the next five and a half years in rehabilitation uh, I underwent 14 different surgeries to rebuild my face arms hips and legs uh, and then received new teeth. And I had to learn how to read and write, walk, talk, um, how the basic things, how to shave, yeah. how to comb my hair. Uh, in the beginning, I, had, I went from a wheelchair to a walker to a cane, then fell down the stairs, broke my leg again. Oh, no. <laughs> so I was back in the hospital and back in physiotherapy. They're like, welcome back. Yes. And you're like, this is not where I want to be. Oh, it was a really long relationship with all of my therapists <laughs> and it, and I, I'm grateful to have each and every one of them and you know they would teach me go up and down the stairs on my bum and I thought you know I'm not a little kid I can do this and and I stepped and I had double vision at the time so I fell down the stairs and that's how I broke my leg again oh wow so kind of being a little bit stubborn thinking you yeah, could do something thinking I can do this you know they don't they can't tell me what to do yeah <laughs> what are they thinking yes and so um, that was five and a half years. How old were you in that time frame? I, I was 31 years old when that happened. And uh, I just had a two-year-old son at the time, Hunter. And so he didn't know what was going on and couldn't understand why all these people all of a sudden were around our house. Yeah. And what happened one day was I left him in the house alone. 
and Julie wanted to go shopping, so I, I said, don't worry, I can watch him. I'll put a Bob the Builder movie on the VCR. And I did that, and my, I went outside for something, and my brother came along and said, would you like to go for a ride into town? I said, sure, because I lost my license for two and a half years um, because of my brain injury. Oh, okay, so not because of the accident, no, but because of the effects. Because of the double vision and uh, my cognitive abilities were not there. I would pull to a stop sign. I might look right, but forget to look left and pull out into traffic. So I, I knew I was not capable of driving. Right. So I, every time somebody would come and give me a ride to town or say, would you like to get to the house for a while? I thought, oh, this is great. So I went to uh, town with my brother. And we came back about an hour later and there was a police car in the driveway. Oh, no. And I thought it was a friend coming to visit. And it turns out it was the neighbors phoned the police because I left my son in the house by himself. And... Uh, he, they seen him crying up against the screen. And oh, no. So it was determined after that that I could not keep my son without supervision, and I could not even keep myself without supervision. <laughs> so I needed 24-hour attentive care, they call it. Wow. So someone had to be with me 24 hours a day. How did you feel about that? Uh, I, f I called them a babysitter. Yeah. Uh, but really, it's a re rehab support worker. And they're great people. It's just, you feel, uh, I know what it feels like maybe now to have Alzheimer's or dementia where you have to have somebody follow you around because sometimes I would walk down our road and forget where I lived. And wow. so people would turn me around. And, and it was probably around. quite challenging because, you know, based on your childhood and leaving home at 16, you're probably really independent, oh, like very. super, super independent. And then when this happens to you, you probably have to become dependent on others, which probably drove you a bit crazy. It did. And it was, um, in the beginning, I didn't understand it. And as I began to understand it, then that's when I start to feel embarrassed. Mm -hmm. You know, I would go into the coffee shop and someone would say, who's this? Oh, it's my friend. And they would say, well, I went to school with you. I don't know this person. But I was embarrassed to say it was my support worker. Oh, you know, who who went around with me and they would bring me grocery shopping and um, try and integrate me back into society. Right. Uh, because what happened was I developed social anxiety disorder where I was had so much anxiety. I wouldn't even go to the grocery store or a movie theater. I didn't want to go anywhere in town. And was the anxiety just the fear of like talking to people or interacting uh, the fear of interacting and it was the fear of something bad happening and I understand now that anxiety is negative goal setting yeah a lot of times we think I'm gonna to go to town and I'm gonna have a great time where anxiety says I'm gonna to go to town and I'm gonna to start talk to somebody and then I'll start stuttering and then I'll be embarrassed or I'll start crying there's all these emotions that you go through and and the anxiety takes over yeah. The more you think bad things are going to happen, the worse it gets. And your heart starts to palpitate, your chest tightens up, and it feels like a wrestler has a hold of your throat. Um, even you get sweaty and you start shaking when you grab the handle of a store to open the door. Well, and chances are, if all of this anxiety is building up in you and you're having these negative thoughts, that's probably what's going to come true. Absolutely. Right? Because... You know, a lot of people say if you think positive things, then those things will happen. And it's the same thing with negative thoughts. But it's because internally we work ourselves up so much that how can it not be the result that you're thinking about the most? Absolutely. And, right? and it's so true. And at the time when you're having an anxiety attack, you don't realize that I'm in control of this. I created yeah. it and I can uncreate it. But at the time it was happening, I had no understanding of that. And I just thought, oh, this is taking over my life and I'm going to be on this medication forever. I was on depression pills, anti-anxiety pills, um, Zoloft, Wellbutrin, sleeping pills. Wow. Um, Painkillers for all the operations I, I was going through. And I thought, this is crazy. I want to get off all of this stuff. And, but I didn't want to reach out for help. Yeah. I was too embarrassed and I think too proud 
so it took a few years for me to finally say to uh, some of my workers that, okay, I'll reach out for some help. And it got to the point where I didn't want to live anymore. And I was thinking of how I could take my own life. And that's how depressed I, I was. And so when you were in the depression, because you have a beautiful wife, a new son who's growing up, is when you're depressed, is the thought, do you think of them or are you only thinking of your own situation? Only thinking of myself. Yeah. And and you're right, we had a beautiful wife, a beautiful son, beautiful home, uh, businesses, money was not an issue. And so people on the outside would think, what do you have to be depressed about? And the where the depression came from was an inability to create a future for myself. I could not see things getting better. So why go on? And if things aren't going to get better, I just I can't go on with this. And and I thought, poor me, poor me, life sucks. And uh, and probably when you get those thoughts, do you then spiral down? Oh, yes. And yeah, I would imagine that would happen. You go deeper and deeper into despair and dis- depression, and and then you just get so low that you don't even want to get out of bed. Yeah. And you know, people say, "Oh, do you want to go here? Or do you want to go there?" No, no. And then all the you know they would up your depression medication, and I felt like a zombie. And so then you lose your emotions. So somebody would say, "Well, my mother just passed away," and I would just shrug my shoulders and say. Oh yeah. So, what do you want for supper? Wow. Just as if there's there's no emotion. Yeah. And so, if you're in this place, how do you then get out of this place? I reached out for some help uh, to see a psychologist, and he, he was the last person in the world I wanted to see because I thought if I go see a psychologist, I'm admitting there's something wrong with me. Right. I'm going to lose that last little bit of dignity I have left. I'm admitting that I'm crazy or, you know, there's something wrong in my head. Or why can't I fix it myself? Yes, or just, I should be able to pull out of this? Uh, or That's what I said often. Yeah. Just give me a week. Give me a few more days. Give me a month and I'll, I'll be better. Because it probably was hard for Julie to watch, right? Because yes. she loves you and wants the best for you. And you see your partner who you've been together with. How long were you guys together at that point in time? We were together then for 17 years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So you see that happening, you think. She probably also felt helpless. Yeah. Right? Like, what else can I do? Yeah. And I felt like I was a burden on everyone around me. Yeah. Because people had to drive me to doctor's appointments and for surgeries. Uh, drive me to the dentist and physiotherapy. I just felt like such a burden on everyone. And one day I spoke to somebody at about not wanting to live anymore and they stopped me in my tracks and that's the day I decided to get some help and what they said was did you write a letter I said yes and it probably said poor me life sucks I can't go on blah 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 all these bad things I said yeah basically he said I'd like you to go home and write another letter and I said pardon he said I want you to go home and write another letter Write a letter to your son apologizing to him. Why all the kids in the playground are pointing at him and teasing him because his father took his own life. Oh, wow. Write a letter to your wife apologizing to her why she can't get a date because there must be something wrong with her. Her last husband took his life. And, wow. And I just start, broke down crying. I said, okay, I, I get it. I get it. And that's when I re- agreed to reach out and get some help. and. Uh, I met with a psychologist, Dr. Davidson, and uh, he was so helpful. And, you know, a lot of times you you imagine a psychologist of a guy with a white beard and glasses and a pipe and yeah. lay, laying down on a couch. And yeah. he was, Tell yeah, me all your problems. Yeah, he was the exact opposite. And uh, and I'm, I wish I would have gone to see him years earlier because he helped me out so much. Uh, and then within a year and a half, I got off all medication. Wow. Uh, like I weaned myself off under doctor's supervision uh, supervision, yeah. and I, I traded my depression pills for running shoes and so I really? realized yes absolutely so do you still run? no I walk you walk? every morning every morning? yeah 
Uh, so many people say, run, forest, run. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's true. I walk. It's true. <laughs> Every morning, I make sure I walk at least 45 minutes, first thing in the morning. Yeah. And people say, I don't have time to walk. Well, get up earlier. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm a huge proponent of physical fitness. I 100% believe in it. And I wish that with our children now, we would be getting them to be more physically active because I think it would solve or help to start to solve a lot of their issues or challenges. And being active is so important, not just physically, but it's also good for your mind, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, with the psychologist that you went to see was that the first thing that he suggested or like how long did it take you before you felt maybe back to yourself again or closer to your version of yourself about six months uh, of seeing him because the first few visits you know you have your arms crossed and you're skeptical thinking why are you asking me these questions <laughs> what what's up like yeah <laughs> I don't want to tell you. you. <laughs> yeah, because of all these, I get probably because of TV shows you watch as a kid or something, and yeah. this guy's going to pick my brain apart. And well, and also I, you know, I don't want to be gender specific, but I think it's a little bit more challenging for men to see a psychologist than women, which sounds weird, but women have their girlfriends; they're always opening up and chatting about things, whereas it seems as though men kind of keep things inside and don't really talk about these things sometimes, right? Yes. And so how did you go from being in the hospital, going through all your rehab, and then going through this very difficult time to getting to the point that you decided you wanted to work in this area? What happened was I was watching breakfast television in Toronto one morning, and, and I actually don't really watch TV. I listen to it. I put it on for background noise yeah. to help me sleep. So it was probably eight or nine o'clock in the morning and I was laying in bed wanting the world to go away. I had the blankets over my head and they said coming up next on breakfast television is Jack Canfield, the creator of Chicken Soup for the Soul, star of the movie The Secret with his new book, The Success Principles, how to get from where you are to where you want to be. And I remember pulling the blankets off my face and sitting up thinking, I don't know where I want to be, but I don't want to be here anymore. Wow. And after the commercial came off uh, he was ex talking about his book you know the success principles and it's he said it doesn't matter your current circumstances your background or what you've been through if you apply these principles you can totally transform your life and then he asked the question what would you do if there were no limitations if anything were possible and as i, I was lying there i thought wow what would i do if anything were possible not only would I learn to read and write again I would write books like this guy <laughs> not only would I learn to speak fluently I would become a speaker and not only would I overcome depression and anxiety I would help people all around the world do that and then the doubts started to creep in thinking how am I going to do this yeah I'm still in speech therapy right now I'm reading books called Bernstein Bears uh, they're little kids books that's the reading level I was at at the time and so I was so excited to get this book that the guy said I could transform my life if I apply these principles. So uh, with the help of my speech therapist, it took me over a year and a half to read the book. Oh, wow. Because it's so big. Yeah. Uh, but as I would read the book, I would apply these principles in my life and started to change my attitude. And the first principle in the book is take 100% responsibility for your life. And I just passed by that because I thought, I'm not responsible for this. I didn't do yeah. this to me. Uh, well, I wanted to ask the question, um, you know, you had a challenging childhood growing up and then you become successful and everything seems on track. And then you have this tragedy happen to you that probably seems to set you back. At that point in time, were you thinking, like, why is this happening to me? I don't understand. Like, did you have all of those thoughts going through your mind? Yes. Yeah. You know, I would say, why? Like, I've helped so many people, and why do bad things happen to good people? Yeah. And I couldn't understand it. And it was a real struggle to wonder why. And so then how did you get to the point where you accepted or took responsibility for it? Uh, that was at my son's seventh birthday. 
where uh, I was sitting off to the side because I didn't like a lot of people. Uh, I didn't like socially to be around a lot of people. So all these kids are at his birthday party and his friend uh, ripped open. He ripped open his present that his friend gave him and it was a baseball and a glove. And he threw the ball to the ground and with a thud in the dirt. And he looked at it and he picked it up again and threw it on the ground and it went thud. And then his friend shouted, baseballs don't bounce. <laughs> and my heart just stopped. I thought, wow, I had to go in the house because I, I became so overwhelmed with the emotions. I thought, how would he know this? I've never thrown a ball with him. Someone else taught him how to skate. Somebody else taught him how to ride a bike. I spent more time with my depression and my poor me thoughts than I did with my son. Oh, wow. So at that day I said, no more. Today's the day I'm going to take 100% responsibility for my life. And that was a day where I said, you know, I, I'm giving up all my poor me stories and all my excuses. No more. And, and since that day, things have changed. And, was it easy ways. to give up those stories? No, because I used them as a crutch. You know, oh, I can't do this, or oh, I forgot this, and oh, I can't remember, or... I'm not able to do this because I would just use all of these uh, injuries as a crutch right. for reasons why I couldn't go somewhere or I couldn't do anything. And so then how did you get to the point where you, you like, did you have some sort of um, mechanism that helped you say, nope, that's an excuse. I need to move on. Or how did, how did you do that? Uh, people would uh, give me reminders and they're called cues. I thought you were going to say they're called kick in the ass. But. Well, it's called a, maybe it's a little kick in the ass. But it's things like my speech therapist, she had came up with this great idea that if I was started to ramble on or make an excuse, she would just pull on her earlobe. Like, that's an excuse, you know, because sometimes I would, you know, my appointment with her was at 2 o'clock on Wednesday, and I went for a ride into town with my brother and missed the appointment. Well... That's an excuse. There's no excuse that I should have I should have been there. Yeah. And so I, I started taking more responsibility for myself rather than have people remind me. And uh, and it felt good to take responsibility. And when you take 100% responsibility of your life, you feel more empowered. Yeah, I would think you would like feel like you gain more control back. Yeah. Right? Because you probably felt like you'd lost control. Especially if you have people running around helping you do everything or watching what you're doing 24-7, right? I felt like a puppet on a string. All I had to do was all the, everything that all these therapists told me to do. You know, I have to do this. I have to do that. Uh, I have to go to physiotherapy. Now I have to go to see the psychologist. And I felt like I wasn't in control of my, whole, my own life. Right. You know, I was just basically like a puppet on a string is how I felt until they handed me the power back saying, okay, now you're responsible. So you're responsible to show up for this appointment. You're responsible to set the appointments. What days do you want them on? What days do you not want them on? And it made me feel a lot better about myself. Right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And even if people don't have an injury, you know, I encourage them to take 100% responsibility in their own life. And they say, well, I do. And I say, well, is there an area where you could improve maybe even 5% in your health and well-being? What would you do if I was that to ask you now? If you're asking yeah, me now? If I were to take 5% more responsibility yeah. for my health and well-being, I would... I'll probably be more disciplined when it, like I work out every day, but I'd probably be more disciplined in ensuring that my workouts were truly like I was utilizing the time and having a really good workout instead of just going through the motions. So you just shared that you don't take a hundred percent responsibility for your health and well-being because there's still room to improve. Of course. Yeah. And so many of us believe we take a hundred percent responsibility, uh, but we don't. And I always say, would you like to be married to someone who's 99% committed? <laughs> no. No. So that means out of a year, three times a year, they'd be somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny when you run the stat. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's... When you look at it that way, yeah. So you want someone that's 100% committed. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you should be committed to yourself and your own well-being, not just to others. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. But don't you think even if you are committed 100%, there are still ways you can still improve? And isn't part of your commitment uh, to improve part of that responsibility? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's always room for improvement. But if you act as if you're responsible for everything that happens to you, you'll notice a big shift in your life. Yeah. And so I act as if I'm responsible for everything that happens around me. Even though I may not be, I act as if I am. And it's really changed my life. And one equation, if you can remember, is E plus R equals O. Yeah. That means event plus response equals outcome. So if you uh, have an event, so my event was this car crash, and my response was, poor me, life sucks. Um, and my e my outcome was a life of misery that I didn't want to be in. So could I go back and change the event that happened? No. The event is something that happens and it may not be in your control. Yeah. But how you respond to it is in your control. So I wanted a different outcome for my life rather than a life of misery and depression. So the only thing I could change was my response how I responded to what happened to me. And when I changed that and decided I'm going to love and accept myself just the way I am, not the way I used to be, Right. my outcome turned out to be beautiful. I'm living a wonderful life that I love. And acceptance uh, was a big thing for me, to accept what happened to me. Of course, yeah. And learn to love and accept myself just the way I am rather than how I used to be or how I envisioned myself to be. And, you know, uh, it doesn't seem like a long time, five and a half years, but then you see all your friends, you know, they're starting businesses, they're progressing progressing and moving forward in their careers, and here I am learning how to read and write. And I would beat myself up for that. Yeah, of course. And, you know, compare myself to the old me. And that's comparison is the thief of joy. It it will steal your joy. And I like that. It's it's a horrible thing. Comparison. Yeah. yeah, I think I think too. You know, the biggest thing in society now, comparison does steal people's joy because everyone's on social media, twenty four seven, comparing their lives to someone else's. Yes. And so you shared with me an example. Or a little story. So I wonder if you'd like to share that now so people can get an idea of that. Yes, absolutely. So I'm fortunate enough that I get to travel all over the world uh, to many different countries. And everywhere I go, I share the same story. I tell them the story of my rich childhood. And I'll ask them, does social media steal your joy? Most people say, no, no. I say, okay, well, let me share this short story with you. And if you close your eyes, you can visualize a lot greater with your eyes closed than with your eyes open. So if you will, close your eyes as I share the story. And I'd like you to paint this picture as I share the story of my rich childhood. Growing up, we had several homes. We traveled constantly, not just in the summer. We traveled all year round. My dad had more cars than Justin Bieber. The cost of heat was not an issue at our house. We could leave the doors and windows open all we wanted. One of our homes had a 30-foot cabin cruiser in the backyard. And I'm grateful for my mom and dad for the life they gave me and the gifts they gave me of love, kindness, compassion, and empathy. And oh yeah, I was rich. So I want you to think about how you're feeling about me right now inside. You might think, wow, he had the same childhood as me. Or you might be thinking, what a jerk. I didn't want to hear this. I can't afford to buy new shoes for my kid, and he's telling me how rich he was as a kid. And then what I do is invite people to open their eyes, and I'll share the same story, only this time I'll paint the picture for you. And growing up, we had several homes. I didn't say they were nice homes, and the images of an old shack, one of the houses that we lived in. We traveled constantly, not just in the summer, we traveled all year round. And the images of a woman moving a mattress out of a vehicle as we moved and moved and moved. I never spent one whole year in the same school. My dad had more cars than Justin Bieber. 
I didn't say they were nice cars. We had one of those yards with cars up on blocks and snowmobiles around and just a lot of junk around the yard. The cost of heat was not an issue at our house. We could leave the doors and windows open all we wanted because we were the kids who had to cut and split the wood and bring it in the house to feed the wood stove. So if we left the doors and windows open, it meant more work for us. One of the homes we had had a 30-foot cabin cruiser in the backyard, and that's where it was, in the backyard with a tree growing through it. <laughs> I never said it was in the water. My brothers and I used to go and hide out in there and play Gilligan's Island. And I'm grateful for my mom and dad for the gift they gave me of love, kindness, compassion, and empathy. You see, I, as I shared, I grew up in an extremely violent and abusive home. And for that reason, my mother left when I was six years old and never came home, not even to this day. And the gift they gave me was how not to treat another human being. And I'm so grateful to be given that at such a young age, as I know so many people in their 60s and 70s who don't know how to treat another human being. And oh yeah, I was rich. I was rich with imagination, not with money. You see, I could use my imagination to escape the reality I was living in. You know, I could go out into those old cars and pretend I'm driving off into the sunset or hop in the boat and pretend I was going fishing with my brother. We just used our imagination to make our lives a little more pleasant than it was. And if I could describe my childhood growing up, it would be that of a dandelion coming up through the asphalt. You know, people don't want you around. They try to get rid of you. And for some reason, I keep coming up bright and shiny all the time. So next time you look at a dandelion, I'd encourage you to look at the beauty in it and not look at it as a weed. And the only difference between a weed and a flower is your perception and how you look at things. Yeah. And we had talked about how that's the same with people posting on social media. Yes. You know, and if you painted a different picture than I did, that's probably normal. Uh, because what's happening now is uh, what's skyrocketing is Facebook, Snapchat, and Instagram. And what's skyrocketing right beside it is depression, anxiety, and suicide at alarming rates. And a lot of it is from comparison. We compare ourselves to each other and we're stealing our own joy, making ourselves feel bad by the stories we're telling ourselves mm -hmm. from the pictures we see and the stories we're hearing on social media. So the next time you hear a story, I would encourage you to get the full story. You know, somebody may post a picture that, oh, we put a new pool in our backyard and I can't afford a new pool. So it makes me feel bad. Well, you don't know if those people have a third or fourth mortgage on their house to put that pool in. Yeah. You don't know the real story. Or how many fights happened about putting the pool in. <laughs> exactly. So I would encourage you to get the whole story before you, before you make yourself feel bad. Yeah. And I think too, um, you know, I shared with you one of the things that I find fascinating is you see your friend post something on social media and it's something great that has happened to them. And why can't we have joy for them? Why can't we say, hey, I saw Forrest just, you know, achieved this goal or this dream. Why can't I be happy for him? Why do I have to then feel bad about myself instead of celebrating his success I automatically think about my own situation and where I'm at. And maybe I should just have a little bit more joy for other people too. People should be grateful and joyful for other people. But I think what society has done, uh, and people are conditioned to look for what's missing. Mm. They look for what's missing in their life. So if I gave you a series of numbers right now, yes, one, three, five, seven, nine, 11, 13. What, what's missing? All the even numbers. No, there's nothing missing. I gave you a series of number. And so you're automatically conditioned to look for what's missing. I said, I'll give you a, a series of numbers. Yeah. And that's all it was. It's just it's a true. series of numbers. So why did I have the expectation? Because we're always looking for, your brain automatically wants to see what's missing. And we do that in our own lives, in our social lives also. What's missing? What am I missing? You know, the, the people ask the questions, why can't I have that? Um, you know, how did they get that? 
rather than ask the question, how do I get that? Right. What can I do to achieve that? Right. We're always looking for something that's missing rather than being grateful for what what we have. Yeah, it's true. It's funny because um, this year I just started in my office. I have three jars and one jar says I'm grateful for. Another jar says I really want. And the third jar is random thoughts. Because <laughs> sometimes I have crazy random thoughts, but I don't want to lose them. And so every morning I write down one thing that I'm grateful for that day and one thing that I really want. And it sounds funny, like people might think it's strange or it's weird. And to be honest, when I first heard of this exercise, I thought, oh, what difference is that really going to make? But it really changes your perception on things. And it really allows you to kind of like hone in on simple things. Like, what am I really grateful for? I'm grateful to be able to spend time with my parents, you know, or that I have a great brother or a great sister or that I have amazing friends. And you can see what is actually really, really important in your life. Yes. Because all the other stuff is just noise, right? And then the I want jar lets you to really narrow in and focus on what you really want to get out of life and what your goals and your hopes and your dreams are. So then you have something to kind of work towards, right? Absolutely. And during my workshops, I do an exercise called what, what do you want? Oh, okay. And so people sit knee to knee. And I would ask you the repeating question, what do you want? And what do you want? And most people will say, I want a Ferrari. I want a new house. I want a boat. And as you keep repeating it, it comes down to, I want a great relationship with my wife. I want my kids to hug me when I walk in the door. Yeah. When you keep asking enough. Uh, so I would encourage people to ask their friends or their spouses to, to go through that and just for a few minutes, for even two minutes, what do you want? Ask a repeating question. And if there's three or 400 people in the room, they all come down to the same five, five or six things that everybody wants. They want to be loved. They yeah. want to be accepted. Uh, it's, it's basic human needs. They want to be held. That totally makes sense. So, okay, we kind of got a little bit off track from um, your recovery and your journey. And I, I don't want, like, we're having such a good discussion, but I don't want to lose out on these pieces. Um, so you decided to take responsibility and accountability. Yes. And then what did the path look like after that? Like, how did you decide to write the book? I started writing notes to my son, explaining, you know, why is dad sleeping more than me? Uh, why is dad angry all the time? So I, I wrote, they were actually called Random Thoughts. The first, <laughs> the first transcript of the book is called Random Thoughts from an Injured Brain. That's funny. And uh, they were notes really to my son. So as he would grow older, he would understand what I was going through at the time. You know, why does dad run out of the grocery store? Because he doesn't know what anxiety is. He's just a little, little yeah. boy. And uh, that's how I, and as I started writing the book, I started to heal. Because I, I think it's called getting it out of you. Yeah. So as I shared the story, the more I shared it, the more I would heal. And I realized that I wasn't alone in this. And there's, there's a lot of people going through it. So that really encouraged me to keep writing. And, and it became a book. And, uh, and so, okay, so you're writing all of these thoughts. Yeah. Um, you have, obviously, like, a lot of them. And then, because everyone would ask, like, so how, how did you go about, like, getting it written or finding a publisher or knowing what to do with it? So at the time, um, I couldn't write. Uh, like, I was writing at a grade three or four level. But I had to set this goal. I set these mind-blowing goals that I'm going to be a speaker and an author. But I couldn't speak very well and I couldn't read or write very well. And I was at my doctor's office one day and he had a headphone set on and he's talking, saying, male patient, 34 years old, traumatic brain injury. As he's speaking, the words are coming across the screen and my eyes lit up. I said, what's that? He said, it's dragon naturally speaking. So as you speak, the words come across the screen. Oh, okay. I thought, wow, I can write a book. And so I went to Business Depot and bought one of these programs and 
that's how I wrote the book was speaking it. Uh, oh, really? Yes. And then I had someone edit it, the book and and so was there anyone that like encouraged you to share it with people or you just were like, no, I need to share this? Uh, no, I was embarrassed about it in the beginning because I thought who's going to read a book about um, somebody with a brain injury. And so I kept putting it back in the, in the drawer thinking uh, maybe it's just a dream. Uh, and then in 2012, Oprah Winfrey came to Canada for the first time. Yeah. And so it sold out within a few minutes. And it was my mother-in-law's dream to go to see the Oprah Winfrey show. And because it sold out, there was no tickets available. But the Chorus Entertainment, who brought Oprah to Canada, put on a contest. If you can make a YouTube video that will inspire people like Oprah, you win a trip for two to the Oprah show. Are you kidding me? So my mother-in-law said, oh, you, you have to uh, make a video, I thought. What are the chances it's open to anyone in Canada? Yeah. Uh, so I made a video and they phoned and said, this was in March, I made the video. She was coming in June. Uh, they phoned and said, you won. I said, thank you. They said, that's it, thank you. This is Oprah, it sold out. I said, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. I, I never watched an Oprah show in my life. <laughs> I love Oprah. <laughs> and my, it's my mother-in-law's favorite show. Yeah. So I won this contest and... Uh, so this was in March. The Oprah show was in June. That's amazing. And then I thought, in my head, I thought, hmm, well, I have this book that's almost done. If I could get it finished and give it to Oprah, maybe it would uh, do, do so well. You're so smart. So uh, then I was really encouraged and uh, excited to work on this book and finish it. And it came out a week after I went to the Oprah show. So I didn't have an opportunity to give her a copy. <laughs> You should just do, have you ever sent her one? Yeah, yes. Okay. I, I did. I did mail her one. Yes. Yeah. Good. Uh, so it, it was a neat experience. And, uh, I got to meet her, Oprah Winfrey and Deepak Chopra. And I thought, I hope they would get married because then her name would be Oprah Chopra. <laughs> <laughs> and they would make a good couple. <laughs> like meeting Oprah uh, I was just a handshake yeah and there was all a lot of security guards around her so it was a it it wasn't uh it's kind of like meeting a rock star yeah yeah for a brief few seconds and, and so do you think so you did the video you ended up winning yes and then you wrote the book yes do you think that by winning that contest did it validate some of your thoughts a little bit to give you the energy and excitement to move forward? Oh, absolutely. It yeah. did. And it's, I think there's 50,000 views on that video on YouTube. It's still on YouTube? Yes. Well, what is it called? Uh, it's called Forrest Willett, uh, Better Than I Used to Be. Okay. We're going to add those to the show notes. And... Yeah, because I think, you know, sometimes in life, good things happen. Sometimes not so good things happen. But I do, in some ways, believe that everything happens for a reason. And, you know, we might not always know the reason, but maybe later it becomes clearer, maybe not. But I think it's interesting that this happened, and then it's just that little bit to kind of propel you forward, yeah. right? And so you publish the book. And then what happened? And then I had a garage full of books. So <laughs> I didn't know anything about publishing books, and so I sent them to a printer, and it worked out a bulk price. If you buy 4000 you, you received a better deal. So I had these two big skids of books filling my garage, and <laughs> I said, what am I going to do with these? And uh, I eventually sold them all during my talks. And, yeah. Um, and I didn't know a lot about book publishing back then, so I, I would sell the book for $20, and it would cost me $17 to ship it to British Columbia, <laughs> and, and $5 to print the book, so I was losing money. On the... yeah. <laughs> so now I've gone through uh, Create Space, which is owned by Amazon. They take care of the printing, the shipping, uh, everything. 
<laughs> so it's valuable lessons you can learn. Yeah, so you learned a lot from your first book because the 12 Hugs, is that the second book? Yes. And what encouraged you to write that one? Um, when I actually wrote that book in a bathtub in Dubai, and it sounds <laughs> odd, I was hired to go speak at Emirates Airlines in Dubai airports. Yeah. And when I first arrived, the person who hired me uh, to come to Dubai was seen me speaking in Arizona and uh, it brought me to Dubai and the first thing they do is bring me into the security room and they said no hugging you can't even shake a woman's hand unless she puts her hand out first and I thought that's really odd and because he said I know you like hugs and and, uh, <laughs> and so how did he know you like hugs because he'd seen oh, your he's, other presentation yes yeah, in my presentation so you hug a lot in your presentation yes <laughs> So everyone gets lots of hugs and it's something that we're given as children and then as we grow older we get to grow away from that yeah it's true you know people even hand you their own child give them a hug it's true you're right, right. come here and give aunt janet a hug yeah and and as people grow older they get away from hugging and it's a basic human need yeah you need physical touch and so uh, I'm sitting in Dubai. It's three o'clock in the morning. And the time zone was really uh, different, so I was wide awake, and I thought maybe if I have a bath, I'll help me go to sleep. And so I grabbed a notepad and I just started writing this children's book. And I included all the people that I've met all around the world, from India, Dubai, uh, the Philippines, Japan, uh, Puerto Rico, like all, all these different places that I've gone to speak. Yeah. I included these real characters in the in the book, and that's how I how I came up with the book. And it's a story of a little boy from a broken home who wants to play with his friends. Uh, loneliness, depression, and anxiety. Yeah. And it's okay to get rid of those. And you know, the little boy in the in the playground, his friends say, "Do you want to come and play?" No, but really he does. But he's just has some anxiety and he's afraid to to say he wants to play oh that's and so it's okay to talk about your feelings and how you feel get some hugs <laughs> get some hugs yes and so then how did you end up um meeting jack canfield and being featured in his in the success principles uh, i sent him a copy of my book originally because sharing the story of how he uh, through that television program, uh, his book encouraged me to oh, uh, right. turn my life around. Uh, so then his assistant uh, phoned me and uh, interviewed me twice and then invited us down to Los Angeles. And I went down and ended up taking uh, one of the workshops he was running. Yeah. And then I've been working for him since then, uh, assisting him in his uh, programs and his trainings uh, and then he basically took me under his wing uh, just a super nice guy very generous and kind loving and he's the one who actually taught me how to hug he was the first man I've hugged uh, really yeah I, well, ne yeah, I never I, had any hugs growing up yeah I was just thinking back to that probably yeah. right yeah so he was the first man that hugged me and said I love you and I started crying and I thought, this seems weird, <laughs> but it felt so good. Yeah. But you know, sometimes, um, like sometimes interactions with different people for whatever reason can bring out different emotions from you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that, so it was, uh, really amazing. Uh, and then he said, I want to feature your story in my 10th anniversary, uh, edition of the success principles. And since then, uh, my stories in living the success principles. Uh, I've been a featured in uh, the movie called Soul of Success, which was nominated for two Emmys. Oh, really? And then in uh, 2016, along with Jack, I was named one of the top 50 difference makers in North America. That's amazing. By Definers Magazine. Oh, I'm not familiar with this magazine. I'm going to have to look that up. Yes. That's amazing. So when you look back at all of these things that have happened, like when you set out your intention, which, what was your intention? 
just to share your story or my intention in the beginning was I wanted to do the things that people told me I could not do yeah and that was really saying so I could not speak very well I'm going to be a speaker I could not read or write very well I'm going to be an author so I, I wanted to turn all my liabilities into assets you know I want to beat this depression and anxiety and if I could do that I could help other people do that how do I do it? So I reached out for help and I shared my dream. And I, I was embarrassed in the beginning, but the more I shared my dream, the more people said, I'll help you. I'll yeah. help you. You know, my speech therapist said, I'll help you write your book. I'll help you do this. And um, the more I shared the dream, the more real it became. You know, I want to meet this person. I want to meet that person. Um, and when you sh share your dream and you're not afraid, yeah, you you'll, you'll be surprised how many people will come and help you. Yeah, well, and also um, all the great surprises that happen along the way. Yeah, right. Like probably even things have happened that you can never have envisioned or set as goals, but it's kind of like a byproduct of what you were going towards, and then these things just happen, right? Yes, and. Every day I do what I call the power of three. Uh, I do three good things. I do one good thing for myself, one good thing for my family, and one good thing for a stranger without any expectation of anything in return. And what happens is the byproduct of that is things do come back to you yeah. tenfold. So if you imagine what your life would look like a year from now, if a thousand good things happen to you. Wow. And like, it's just amazing. Like I said, we said, well, I'd like to meet Mike Tyson and... Uh, I had lunch with him uh, last October in Come Toronto. Come on! Yes. Are you serious? Yeah, I could show you the picture. <laughs> and so it's it, it's uh, uh, really amazing what can happen. And uh, I was doing a talk for Jack Canfield in New Jersey. I flew home that afternoon and uh, met with Mike Tyson in Kleinberg for a, a private lunch there. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you think that part of it is too, like when you put these things out in the universe, like you say them, but you also believe them that they will actually happen? Yes. Yeah. Because you have to believe it, right? Yeah. I interviewed someone and they were talking about um, achieving their business or getting to a certain goal. And I said, oh, did you think that, you know, maybe it would never happen? And they said, no, Janet, that thought never crossed my mind. Yeah. Because if I thought it would never happen, it wouldn't have happened. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's so true. And this house that we're sitting in right now, if you look in 2013, I have a, a book. And I, I always write my goals down. And I wrote that I would you know, build a home overlooking the Blue Mountains. Um, and now we're sitting in that home. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah. And it's... I, Back then, I had no idea how we would. This property was not available then. There was just no idea how I would make this happen. And it, it came true. Do you think that sometimes um, some of the challenges that people have is that um, they become a little bit lost in that they don't have goals or something that they're striving towards? So it's kind of like you're wandering around aimlessly with no direction? Yes. And a lot of it's from procrastinating, mm -hmm. putting things off. Yeah. I'm going to start a business one day. I'm going to lose that weight. I'm going to write a book. Yeah. But when this happens, when that happens. Yeah. And you just have to take action and go for it. It's funny. I'm going through a little bit of procrastination myself right now. <laughs> and I got a mentor last year. And my mentor has been great, but in part, it's to like relook at resetting goals in order to like propel yourself forward, right? Because it's so easy to do nothing, right? Yeah, it is. Um, so I, we have a few minutes left. I'm, I have a couple of questions and I know you have a share, a story that to share as well. So, um, the one question I want to ask, because I want um, you to leave people with something, is if you had a billboard and it was anywhere in the world, what would you write on that billboard? I would write, you deserve to be loved. 
Yeah. And you should have a hug. Yes. <laughs> and hug someone today. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love that photo. We'll have to put this up. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Do you think that that's kind of um, contributing to mental health or anxiety or depression in some way? Is that feeling that people don't believe that? Yes. And you do, do deserve to be loved, not only by others, but by yourself. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we beat ourselves up and, you know, we wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you say, oh, my hair looks like crap. I have a pimple on my nose and my teeth aren't straight. And we say these bad things to ourselves. But if you went to work and said that to your coworkers or friends, your hair looks like crap, you got a pimple on your nose, you wouldn't have any friends. Left. No, it wouldn't go over very well. But, but we do this to ourselves every single day. Yeah. So it's time to stop beating ourselves up and stop saying bad things to ourselves and love ourselves and appreciate ourselves just for who we are. Yeah, no, I like that. Um, and so is there something from when you were younger, it might not have been your mom or your dad or maybe a teacher. Is there anything that someone always said to you that has kind of stuck in your mind that you would never forget? I would say it was it would be a French teacher from um, Midland High School. Yeah. Mr. McNally. He was oh, bit, I remember him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did he, he say to you? He's a little bit odd. But he would always say that um, you can achieve anything and don't let anyone squish your dreams. Really, you can achieve anything. And in the beginning, I didn't believe him. But, oh. but he would often say that. And... He was very encouraging. He was a very eccentric person. Yes, yeah. And I a lot that. of people thought he was different, but for me, he was always encouraging. Probably the most encouraging teacher I ever had. Oh, amazing. I love hearing those stories. I interviewed um, John Farragher earlier, at, like a couple of years ago. He was the high school basketball coach. And you know, you meet someone like him, and he was meant to be a teacher and a coach. And he's impacted and influenced so many people. So I love it when I hear someone say, it was a teacher that said this to me, and I remember that, right? Yes. And so, um, what is the story that you would like to share? I'm dying to hear this story. The story I I often share at the end of my talks is the story of Bobsy, and it was in the first Chicken Soup for the Soul book. Oh, no. Forrest has just given me a Kleenex. (laughs) So, Bobsy was a six-year-old boy living in Phoenix, Arizona. And his mother was given the news that he had terminal leukemia and uh, he was given three weeks to live. And his mother thought, this isn't fair. Every child should have their dreams come true. And she looked down at her son in the hospital bed and said, Bobsy, have you ever thought of what you want to be when you grow up? And he looked up at her with a big smile and said, Mom, I want to be a fireman. She said, let's see if we can make that happen. And when he went to sleep that afternoon, she went down to the local fire hall in Phoenix and met the chief, Bob, and explained her son's situation. And she said, is there any way possible that you could take my son for a ride in a fire truck? And he was so touched by the story, he said, we can do better than that. We make the uniforms right here in Phoenix, so if you give us his sizes, we'll make him a real uniform with real boots, hats, liquors, everything. And we'll make him an honorary fireman for the day. So the Wednesday came, the chief brought the uniform up to Bobsy's hospital room and suited him up. And with his mother's permission, they carried him down to the waiting ladder truck. And on the way back to the fire hall, he got to help steer the back of the ladder truck. And he had a smile on his face as big as Arizona. And that day, he went on three fire calls. Wow. He was interviewed by Fox Television News. Uh, He rode in the chief's car, a police car, and an ambulance. And they brought him back to the hospital that evening and let him keep his suit. And over the next coming months, they would stop in and visit him just to say hi and see how he's doing. And on the night that his vital signs were failing, the nurse who believes in hospice remembered the day that he was a fireman and called the fire department and said, is there any way possible you could send someone over in uniform to say goodbye to Bobsy? 
And the chief said, we can do better than that. When you hear the sirens coming down the road, I want you to make an announcement on the PA system that there's not a fire. We're just coming to see one of our finest one last time. And one more thing, open his window. So the fire trucks pulled up with the lights and sirens and they put the ladder truck up to the third story window and eight firemen and two firewomen climbed in. And with his mother's permission, they all took turns rocking him, holding him, telling him how much they loved him and how much he meant to them. And Bob opened his eyes and he said, Chief, am I really a fireman? He said, yes, you are, Bobsey. You really are. And Bobsey smiled and closed his eyes for the last time. And I share that story with you for two reasons. One is there isn't one person listening that wouldn't do anything humanly possible to make that child's dream come true. Yeah. And the second is I think there's a little Bobsey in each and every one of us. There's still a little kid inside with hopes, dreams, goals, and desires that are still unfulfilled. And you know you would do anything humanly possible to make that child's dream come true. Now it's time for you to make yourself and your dreams, your own dreams come true. Do it for the little kid inside. That's such and a good story. Bobsey was the first child to make a wish child. Really? Yes. That's what started the foundation. So his mother and the chief and the policeman started the... Uh, fire department or the sort of Make-A-Wish Foundation. Uh, Bobsey was buried in his uh, fire uniform. I didn't know that story. Yeah. That's so sweet. It's sad, but it's sweet. It is, and it's a reminder that, yeah. you know, we would do everything for everyone else. Yeah. And we try to please everyone else. And when we do that, the only person who's not happy is ourselves. It's true. So it's time to start doing stuff for yourself. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how you can get caught up in trying to make everybody else happy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you have to make yourself happy before you can actually help others, too, yeah. right? If you fill your cup up before you can start dishing out. Yeah. yeah. Because if you're running on empty, it's hard for you to give and give and give. You're going to get burnt out. Yeah. It's true. It's true. So, Forrest... I have 100% enjoyed this chat today. Thank you. I, I have also. learned so much about you, more than I knew before. And I'm sure that people would like to even know more about you. So if they wanted to find out more information, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, ForrestWillett.com. Okay. And then also, um, are you available on social media? Yes, on Facebook and Twitter. And so do you, is your Facebook account like a personal account or do you allow people to connect with you on there? Uh, I allow people to connect with me. Okay. So either on Facebook or Twitter? Yes. You're not on Instagram? No. <laughs> I don't know how to work that yet. I will get on it. You don't need to. Or you can type in my name on YouTube and watch videos there also. Yeah. I want to put the link to that video and I actually want to go take a look at it as well. But thank you so much. I've totally enjoyed this and I can't wait to see what next goals you're crushing and where you're going to be in the next couple of years. Thank you. <laughs>